0: So encouraging to hear about all that the Lord is doing uh, in and through the lives of, uh, of our young people as they participated in this trip. And uh, uh, one of my daughters had the opportunity to go on that uh, trip and just uh, really was uh, touched by the opportunity she had to, to serve as well as to get to know and come alongside of others, uh, even from our church as well. Uh, would you join me as we bow our heads and hearts? in prayer as we open God's Word together. Our Father, we thank You for Your presence with us. We thank You that You have spoken to us through Your glorious Word, and as we prepare to open it together this morning, we ask that by the power of Your Holy Spirit that You would minister to our hearts, that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, all that you would say to us this day. Lord, we do thank you for the work of ministry that goes on in this church and through this church to others. But this morning especially, we pray for the ministry of your Spirit to each and every one of our lives. For the glory of the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Amen. Have you ever found yourself taken in by someone? you thought that they were one way, and then you found out that really they were someone entirely different. Now, sometimes you catch on to this early, and you're just disappointed. Uh, Other times, it takes longer to catch on to it, and you find that you have in some way been taken advantage of by that person, And, and, and there's a deep hurt that remains as a result. Other times, it can happen over a very long period of time, and there is maybe a sense of shame, a sense of guilt, a sense of of anger. How could I have been so deceived? There are times as we journey through life in this world that we find ourselves interacting with some people who are very deceptive. And we would love to think that when we walk inside of the doors of a church that we are in a place that is always safe from that. And yet through the history of Christianity, time and time again, it has been shown that there are occasions where some people find their way in, try to gain influence amongst the people of God in order to cause people to stumble, in order to bring about division, in order to deceive. Now here we are in the middle of summer, a beautiful sunny, hot day. Most of us would rather come into church and hear a exciting, build us up and be encouraged kind of message. And yet with a sense of urgency on behalf of the well-being of the people of God, Jude. Under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, penned a letter to the early church that still speaks to us today. We started our series last week that we're calling Contend in the New Testament Letter of Jude. And this morning, we're going to pick up from where we left off last week and we're going to, in a sense, discover together the anatomy of false teaching. We're going to seek together to learn from God's word how to recognize and be on guard against those who might subtly seek to lead us astray. I want to invite you to grab a Bible. I hope you have a copy either uh, on your chair next to you or on your phone to open in an app and uh, to join me in the book of Jude in the New Testament. Jude is Uh, A very short letter, it comes immediately before the book of Revelation. So if you're having difficulty locating it, if you find the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and uh, you go back and, and Jude is the book that comes immediately before that. We looked at just the first couple of verses last week, and I'm actually going to begin reading a couple of the verses that we looked at last week because there's a sense in which while this is a very short book, there is a continuous argument through it. Last week, we really saw the foundation, the the point that Jude was making as he wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. This week, in a sense, we're looking at his illustrations, his argument, his examples to prove his point, and then next week, we're going to really look more at what we might call the application. Now, that said, we are going to talk today about how this is applicable to our lives even so. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 3, but we're going to spend our time really developing uh, from verse 5 forward. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4, for certain people, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so right there in verse 4, we find what we might call the warning. And the warning is to contend for the faith because deceptive false teachers are seeking to lead others astray. We talked briefly last week even about the way that he describes them here and there's three things he says about them. They pervert, the, they are ungodly, uh, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality and they deny our only master and Lord. And we talked about how that was a rebelliousness, a disobedience, an unwillingness to set themselves under the authority of Christ. And so he sounds the alarm. He says, Be on guard, contend for the faith, because there are those of whom it was foretold who are seeking to lead astray. And one of the things that we're going to see through this passage this morning, even as he kind of piles up example after example and illustration after illustration so that we can learn and understand something of the character and the approach of such people, is that he doesn't name names, but he does help us to understand how these people operate. And he seeks to remind us of the fact that God has already determined that they will experience judgment. So, we have not only the warning first of all, but then he moves into verse 5 through verse 7 where we see, now I want to remind you Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their proper position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so, he he begins to give some examples. So, he's saying, let me sound the warning. Uh, and then he says, and, and let me point back to the Old Testament so that you can see that this really is nothing new, that this has been the case throughout the history of the people of God. And so he points then to the historical evidence that there have always been those who appeared to be a part of the community, but in truth were not. Now, sometimes our our temptation is to read these things and immediately our mind goes to those who are outside, to those that we see in the culture and in the society But Jude's concern here in particular is those who have subtly found their way inside. And we're going to see that, in a sense, with the illustrations that he gives. And he points back in these few verses to three. In fact, Jude likes to to pile things up in threes. I mentioned that last week. He points to three uh, examples. And one of the things I've got to tell you is we're not going to be able to go into as much depth as we might like with some of these examples just simply because there are so many of them. Uh, there are also some places where I would love to be able to point you to chapter and verse in the Old Testament and say, well, he's referring to that situation. But we can't always do that. And so, one example of that, which I find really interesting, is you'll notice in verse 5, he says, now, I want to remind you, so though you should already once have fully known it, he says that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, that should cause us to pay attention because he's pointing back to the Exodus in the Old Testament where where God rescues his people Israel out of slavery, out of captivity in Egypt, and brings them out first into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. But here Jude is saying, Jesus was the one who did it. You see... uh, The New Testament authors understand that the Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God, has always existed, that he has been active, engaged in this saving work since even before the foundations of the earth. And so Jude is able to, in a sense, read back into the Old Testament and say, Jesus is the one who was already at work. He gives this example of the exodus. He says, uh, Jesus saved this group of people out of slavery, out of captivity in Egypt. There's now the assembly of Israel, the, the, the covenant community of God's people in the Old Testament. And it says, but then he later destroyed some who did not believe. So, there were a group, even within this larger group of Israel, who, though they appeared to be part of the believing community, were in fact not truly a part of it. Now, if you look through the books of Exodus and of uh, uh, Leviticus and of Numbers and of Deuteronomy, you see over and over again that they were whiners. They they were grumblers, they were complainers. When Moses said, God says, go this way, they said, no, but we want to go that way. When Moses says, the Lord is leading us to a land that is flowing with milk and honey, some of them even point back to Egypt where they had been slaves and say, oh, but that was the land of milk and honey. Why have you taken us away from there? Didn't you see the size of the cucumbers there? I'm not that big a fan of cucumbers. They're okay, but I mean... So, we don't know exactly the scenario is pointing to here, but over and over again, there were those who stood up and rebelled, and because of their unbelief, they challenged not only the authority of Moses, but they challenged God himself. And Jude here is reminding us that though they at first appeared to be a part of the community, They grumbled, they complained, they tried to cause dissent amongst the whole community of Israel. And God, in his wisdom and for the well-being of his people, destroyed, judged those who were not truly his and who were seeking to lead others astray. He then goes on to uh, another example here in in verse 6, and there were angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, and now he has kept them in eternal chains for gloomy darkness until the judgment day. Again, it's difficult for us to know exactly. Uh, Historically, throughout the history of the church and throughout early Judaism, there was the understanding that in Genesis 6— it, uh, when it talks about the fact that the sons of God married the daughters of men, that there was perhaps there some sort of indication that that was speaking of of angels who engaged in relations with women, and that there was an offspring of that, it, it, many scholars today reject that view. I tend not to to take that particular view, but it may have been that that is what Jude had in mind here. Or it may simply be talking about the great rebellion that took place in heaven, where Jesus and, and, and the myriad of angels cast Satan and a third of the angels out. We don't know for sure what Jude has in mind in terms of chapter and verse for this. But again, the point is that there was an established place, that these angels, though part of the community of the angelic host of heaven, did not stay within their proper designated position as servants of the living God. But because they stepped out of that, seeking to deceive others, that was one of the things that we're told that Satan did, is he deceived others who are now his demonic host. And and Jude's point is, even in that realm, there were those who at first may have appeared one way, but were not true. And now there is a punishment that is kept for them. God works to protect the purity of his people. And then he gives another example. Verse seven, Sodom and Gomorrah. We read about Sodom and Gomorrah in in, in Genesis chapter nineteen. These were some cities, and they uh, uh, the wickedness of these cities had come up before the Lord. Uh, we read there that the Lord had determined that He was going to destroy these cities because of the wickedness. He sent some of His angelic hosts to go down and, in a sense, to bear witness against these cities. And here, just as in Genesis nineteen we see that amongst the sins of these places, they had exchanged God-given sexual relations within the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman, and they were indulging in all kinds of immorality and pursuit. In the ESV here, it says unnatural desire or strange flesh is what the original language points to. It's a Idiom that is being used here for homosexual acts. He says, they also serve as an example undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Even though these cities were located in a place, and Lot, the nephew of Abraham, lived there, and at first they seemed to be a prosperous place amidst what would later become the promised land, they in fact also were deceptive places that sought to entice others to follow their ways. And so we have this historical evidence, as Jude says, look back, this is nothing new. And just as God has dealt with those who sought to entice and deceive others, so he knows how to do that in order to protect the purity of his people today. But he's not done yet. In verse 8, he says, yet in like manner, these people, so he goes from his Old Testament examples and says, let me apply that now to the people in your midst that I'm concerned about that you not be led astray by. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 9, but when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. They are shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Tell us how you really feel about these people, Jude. There's a lot in here. And, and, and what he's doing here is he's now moving from the historical evidence. He's, he's now moving to, if you like, the telltale characteristics of these deceivers that they're selfish, that they're immoral, that their rebellious pride marks them as those who have no regard for Christ or his people. Now, he introduces that in verse 8 when he says that they're like dreamers. In other words, that they're always promoting, oh, well, yeah, I have this vision or or, or, I had this dream about that, and they're following their own inclinations, their own ideas, their own perspectives, and so-called visions, which lead them to do really whatever they desire to do, including defiling the flesh. Again, there's that idea of immorality and ungodliness, rejecting authority. There is a a pride uh, that says that they don't have to submit themselves to the authority of any others, and not even to the authority of God's Word, and blaspheming the glorious ones. Now, I've got to tell you, the book of Jude, though it's really short, it's only 25 verses, it has some real challenges as you study it. Not least because Jude then goes in to give this illustration, this, this picture of, of the archangel Michael contending with the devil over the body of Moses. Here's the problem with that. We don't find that anywhere in the Bible. In fact, it appears to come from a document that uh, uh, that, that, that was circulating uh, known as the testimony of Moses. Now, it's never been considered to be Scripture. I don't think that Jude is quoting it thinking that we're supposed to understand it as being Scripture. But rather, he is pointing to something, that uh, a, an account that was well known in that day, even though it is not really familiar to us today. But the point that he is making here is that even with the divinely given authority that Michael, who seems to be kind of the the chief among the angels of heaven, had, that when he was in a situation of contending, he did not speak a slanderous accusation. He did not appeal to his own authority. He did not stand on his own position, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. And he's making the point here that those who are under proper authority submit to their authority at all times. Those who are under proper authority recognize it is not their place to slander or to condemn others, but rather As the Scripture says, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12, the Lord, it is the Lord's to avenge. And so, that doesn't mean he's not suggesting here that we don't confront when there is false teaching or deceivers. He's not saying that we should not make wise judgments. But there's a difference between making wise judgments and condemning someone. And all through this book, even though it's got some tough language in it, and we'll see this really come to the forefront next week, there's this idea of the fact that those who are the people of God address even those who would seek to lead them astray with mercy, seeking to win them to truth. He gives these examples here. And then again, he goes on to explain some of the characteristics. He says, these people, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. And and, and so if there's anything that they don't like, well, they make it a matter of, of blasphemy. They make it a matter of speaking harshly against things. They condemn and accuse and slander people. More than that, they were destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. In other words, they give into their own lusts and passions and desires, and they are constantly engaged in them more and more and more. And so there's a sense in which their own giving in to those things or what ultimately condemns them and destroys them. And so he gives this warning, verse 11, woe to them. Now whenever in scripture you see the word woe, pay attention. <laughs> woe. It means this is a a heavy word of judgment, of of warning. He says, woe to them. And then he piles up these illustrations again, appealing to Cain and to Balaam and to Korah. And folks, this is where this is where kind of our Bible trivia, our Bible knowledge gets tested a little bit in terms of Who were these, and and what's he saying here? Woe to them, for they, first of all, they walked in the way of Cain. Now, Cain, we read about in Genesis chapter 4. He is one of the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain and his brother Abel go to present an offering to God. Uh, Abel's offering is acceptable. Cain's, we don't know the reason for it, but for some reason it is not acceptable. Cain is ticked. Cain is jealous at his brother. And God warns him, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. Be on guard because if you keep on going down this path, it will lead to destruction. And Cain ignores that. He ignores the direct warning of God and he murders his brother. And here Judas saying, such people, these. Deceptive people who worm themselves in, they walk in the way of, Jane, uh, of Cain. There is, a, there is a jealousy that motivates them, but more than that, they ignore and reject gracious warning. They walked in the way of Cain, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Now, Balaam, we read about in Numbers 25, and actually several chapters before that, Balaam was a a prophet. He's kind of a weird prophet, because he's not really a prophet of God. He's more like a seer. And uh, the king uh, of Midian and some of the other surrounding areas, they get together, and they're like, let's hire this guy to pronounce a curse over the assembly of Israel, because we're really worried about Israel. We're really worried about the fact that their God seems to be battling on their behalf. So, let's hire this guy to pronounce a curse over them. Some of you may remember um, that this is the guy who, who has a donkey, and he rides out on the donkey to go and to do this. And, uh, and the donkey encounters an angel in the path that Balaam can't see. And so, the donkey tries to move aside, and Balaam gets mad, starts beating the donkey. Uh, he tries to get him to go forward, but the donkey won't go. And so, uh, uh, finally, the donkey actually turns around and speaks to Balaam. Now, God can do anything. I've never had a donkey speak to me, which I'm thankful for because if if you're at the point where God needs to speak to you through a donkey, you're in real trouble. But anyway, God warns him, you cannot and you will not curse my people. So... Balaam loses out on a big payday because he's not able to do what he was going to be hired to do. So what he does instead is he encourages the king of Midian. Okay, so we can't curse them. We can't get in that way. But if you send out all of your best-looking young women and you entice them, the men of Israel, to indulge in all sorts of stuff with them, committing all sorts of immorality and throwing all these wild parties, then you'll find a chink in their armor. And so for the sake of gain, he seeks to lead the people of Israel into unfaithfulness to their God. And so he says, these false teachers are exactly like that, just like Cain. They're jealous and they refuse to listen to wise warning. Just like uh, Balaam, they're out for their own gain and will seek to deceive people in any way they can for their own benefit. And he says, and they are like those who perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah, we read about in Numbers chapter 16, and basically he gets together and he gathers a group of 250 leaders of the people of Israel and they march out against Moses and Aaron and they say, what's so special about you? All of us are God's people and all of us should get to, 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 to lead and to do these offerings and to do these sacrifices and to present these things because we're all holy equally before God. Long story short, Moses... Uh, um, is instructed by the Lord to say to them, hey, have them come out and present an offering. You and Aaron present an offering. Have them come out and present an offering as they all come out to present the offering. And uh, God says to Moses and Aaron, hey, why don't you step aside just a minute? And again, if you're ever in a place and God says, hey, move away from them just for a second. And the ground opens up and fire falls from heaven and destroys those 250 leaders led by Korah because they were rebellious against those who God had set in positions of faithful leadership over his people. He wants the people to whom he's writing, and even us today, to recognize the fact that though there are those who seek to deceive, God knows how to work on behalf of His people. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't still have our eyes wide open and be on guard. Last week, we talked about the fact that we're on guard by contending for the faith, being careful that we recognize and stand firmly on truth, But he goes on here in verse 12, he he says that these people, these false teachers, these people who, who weasel their way in, sometimes, by the way, they're in positions of leadership in a church, sometimes they are just in positions of influence. But as you know, you don't always have to have a position in order to be an influencer. These people, he says, are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. The love feasts were another name for, uh, oftentimes they would have communion, the Lord's Supper, but they would gather together for a meal. And, and then they, at the beginning they would break the bread and at the end of the meal that they would take the cup and they would have this as a fellowship meal. he's like, they come in and they sit with you at the table and they eat with you. Think about this. They come into your home. They sit at your dining table. They, they eat mac and cheese with you. And, uh, and, 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 and yet the whole time they have ulterior motives. He describes them this way. He says that they are like shepherds who are only feeding themselves. Now, a faithful shepherd is concerned for the sheep. A faithful shepherd leads and guides and protects and seeks to make sure that the sheep are well cared for and fed. He says, not these people. They're just out to feed themselves. Yeah, it it may seem like they're really good teachers, It may seem like they're really good shepherd. They're giving leadership. But underneath that, they have one goal in mind. And it's their own gain. And he goes on to describe and he piles up these things. They're like waterless clouds swept along by the winds. When you see a black cloud in the sky, it promises rain, right? So when a cloud doesn't produce rain... It's promising something but without delivering. In the same way and he goes on another example here they are fruitless trees in late autumn. Uh, we've got some apple orchards in this area, and, and, and in the autumn, there are apples on these trees everywhere. So imagine you're walking in to an orchard, and there's trees everywhere, and yet you're in the height of season, and yet you can't find a single apple. There's no fruit whatsoever. They promise one thing, you see the tree, but they fail to deliver. What they have to say, what they do, what they seek to deceive you into, only leaves empty. Jesus uses a similar analogy when in the Gospels he says that you will know a tree by its fruit. They are not only fruitless trees, they are twice dead, uprooted trees. He says they're wild waves of the sea casting up their foam of their own shame. So, waves are useful. Waves uh, 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 can help boats get out or get in. Waves uh, do all sorts of things. But have you ever been down to like a lake shore or to the ocean and you look and it's just like scum? There are some times where waves just churn up. Junk. He says that's what they're like. They're waves cast up to their own shame. They are like wandering stars for whom gloom and utter darkness has been reserved forever. Again, these are, these are fierce words. These are serious, sober statements. But Jude, as he writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is burdened For the well-being of the people of God. Be on guard. They look really impressive. They dress really impressive. The things that they say sound really sweet to the ear. But make no mistake. God knows precisely who they are. Their condemnation is written, but be on guard against them. And so then he goes to the final portion of this section of the letter, and what we see is that the end result, and he's been pointing to this all along, the end result is the judgment of God is coming against these deceivers. Verse 14, it was about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly, of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, note. Over and over again, he says, ungodly, 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 ungodly. And we talked about this last week. What is, what is ungodly? It is that which is out of keeping with the character of God. True believers pursue godliness. We want to reflect Him. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that, that we should be imitators of God as dearly loved children. But these are ungodly. Now, again, Jude makes this a little challenging for us because he quotes another ancient text, not in Scripture. First, Enoch. Now, Enoch is a biblical figure. He is a part of the, uh, of the lineage, as it says here, the seventh from Adam. Uh, so, we find him related in, 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 uh, in the book of Genesis, in the genealogies there, but this account had become well known. Again, not as Scripture, and yet it still reflects the truth of scripture that Jesus Christ is coming again with his holy angels and when he comes there will be judgment and that those even amongst who those who appeared to be a part of the congregation of God's people and yet were not truly believers. Instead, we're deceivers. They will face this judgment. And as if we need more insight into their character, they're grumblers, they're malcontent, they follow their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters, and they show favoritism to their own advantage. Wow, there's a lot in here. I was walking through this passage with my wife, trying to make sense of it as we were talking over it together, and as I was studying through it, and she said, well, who do you think these are today? Who who, who do you think some of these false teachers are today? And and I want to briefly address that, but I want to be careful here. I'm not naming names. I'm not giving my opinion as to who they are, but I do want us to consider what it looks like And, and who are false teachers today. How do we recognize them? As I said, the focus here in Jude is those who are in the church, who have the appearance of being a part of the believing community, but they are not. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And if we go to the next slide here, we see that. And we see that even in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul warned about this. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Be on guard. Be on guard. And so, some examples that we might consider for today, one of them is that those who have left the quote-unquote community of faith and attempt to draw others away with their message. It probably has not escaped your attention that there have been some Christian celebrities, some worship leaders, some Children of major Bible teachers who have taken to social media to tell their story about how they used to believe these things, but how they are now so enlightened and how they've come to to find out all of this stuff that the church doesn't want to let you know about all of the errors in the Bible, folks. They are deceivers. We need to pray because many of them are struggling with many things. We need to engage with grace and with mercy. But be on guard because their goal in going to these platforms is not to say, I'm struggling with my faith. is not to say that, oh, I'm not really a believer. It is to say, you shouldn't be either. And let me give you all of this distorted things which are totally out of context, which any five-year-old who listens well in Sunday school t- can defend against. In all, but because they have this platform. And so I would plead with you, it may be that some of you are following some of these guys on social media, some of these women oh, I on social media on different platforms. I would plead with you, don't simply take them at their word. If they raise something and you don't know how to answer it, come and speak with one of the pastoral staff here. We would be delighted to sit down and take you through that and and help you to process through it and take you to the scriptures. Because some of the greatest minds in human history have been deep scholars of the word and yet some of these people think that oh they're finding something for the first time some secret revelation beyond guard uh, there's more than that there's also those who either deliberately or unwittingly champion worldly values in the church Seeking to lead others to compromise truth and godliness. We touched on some of this last week, but they come into the church, but they come in with all of the stuff that the world says is so important. And they're seeking to win followers for themselves. Need to speed up here, but there are those who take on a mantle of, of, of leaders that, that they say are they are unquestionable. They become almost like cult leaders because their lives or their doctrine are utterly inconsistent, but nobody has the right in their mind to question them over it. I appreciate Tim Chalice, who suggests some others. He speaks of the heretic that we have to be on guard against. That is the false teacher. He talks about the charlatan, the con man the prophet, those who talk about the fact, oh, I have this special word from God to bring to you. There is the abuser, those who manipulate and control and often pursue their own lusts at the expense and the pain and the harm of those that they are supposed to care for. There's the divider, always looking to find an opportunity for gossip and division and slander and criticism. There's the popularity seeker. They will teach, preach, do anything as long as people enjoy it and respond to it and the crowd gets bigger and bigger. And then there's the speculator constantly coming up with, well, you know, you know, so here's the, here's the right new interpretation of this, or, or you know, I, I, the way that we're supposed to understand this is being this. Now, it's true, there are times where we need to understand the nuance of a text that perhaps we have not noticed or seen before, but if somebody's coming up with stuff that theologians for the past 2,000 years have not come up with, it's wrong. It's wrong. And so, how does all of this apply? It applies really in the closing portion of the book that we're going to look at next week, but simply let me leave you with this. First, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, be so familiar with the truth and in your own pursuit of godliness that anything false is so apparent Because the light is shining so brightly that the darkness cannot hide. Secondly, please don't equate numerical growth or worldly success with the blessing or the approval of God. Just because somebody has a big following does not mean that they are a faithful teacher or that they have good intentions or that God is blessing. How often we have fallen as a church into that. Don't be discouraged. That's what Jude would say. This is what Jude is saying. Don't be discouraged. All of this was foretold. It's okay. Yeah, you may kick yourself. And it's like, oh, how didn't I see that? But don't be discouraged. God is in control. He already knows the end from the beginning. Don't be like them. This may seem obvious, but don't be like them. Don't engage in slanderous accusations against them but gently point even deceivers to the truth. Nobody has ever been won by shouting louder. And finally, brothers and sisters, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. We may not like this, but it is a biblical instruction. The Apostle Paul gives it to the church in Corinth. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith and prayerfully seek the Lord, asking Him to expose areas of ungodliness and immorality and rebellion in your life. Simply a matter of coming before the Lord. How do we guard against such deception? Keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep looking to Jesus and saying, Lord, here I am. I need your grace every day. Keep me walking in you that I might also help others to keep walking in you. We are to be on guard against false and deceptive teachers in their many various forms because their fanciful promises all come up empty. And their path leads to destruction. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, I've spoken long. And there is so much in this passage that we have even been brief in moving through. I pray that you would guard this church in your Truth, that you would guard each and every one here under the sound of my voice, whether in this room or joining us online, that we would earnestly contend for the faith, being on guard, being discerning of that which is false that would seek to come in and distort, and so loving your truth and so rejoicing in your grace and your goodness that we are able, indeed, to stand firm at all times. Lord, I pray for your church, not only here at Springbrook, but your church across this land, indeed, your church around the world. Continue, O God, to raise up faithful, godly shepherds for your people. Continue, O Lord, to protect your people against those who would seek to deceive and distort. And Lord, we thank you that you, the God who has called, who has declared your people beloved and who is keeping us for the Lord Jesus Christ on that soon and coming day, are faithful to all of your promises. Therefore, we need not fear. To you be praise, honor, honor, And glory this day throughout all eternity in our lives and in your church.